0: According to the most recent polls, the number of people who attend religious services in America is in a steady decline. The Barna Group, which specializes in this kind of religious research, has tracked this trend for decades. And it appears that culturally, faith is at an all-time low. And for many, this is a sign that we are heading in the wrong direction. And I imagine if I was to poll this church, I think that most of you would want more religious people in America because it makes for a safer and more moral society, generally speaking. And I think you might add to that, religious people are similar to us in a sense that they have a kind of faith. I mean, they believe in some kind of God. It might not be the one true God. It might not be the God of the Bible even. But it might be easier to reach those kinds of people because at least they have one foot in the pool. You know what I'm saying? I mean, at least they're theistic in their thinking. And so if we have lots of religious people in America, maybe the gospel is going to spread much more easily. It would be naive of us to believe that religious people, and what I mean by religious people, I would say Mormons, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, etc., are closer to the kingdom than irreligious people are I think it would be naive of us to think that way. We assume that if somebody acknowledges God, like I stated, they are at least closer to believing the Gospel than the person who says, I don't think there's a God at all. Certainly the man or the woman who goes to the synagogue or the mosque or the temple or the cathedral is going to be closer to the kingdom of God than the agnostic professor at the university or the hell's angel at the biker bar, right? But if you have read through the Gospels, if you have seen the various encounters that Jesus had with all different kinds of people, you might want to think twice about that presupposition. Jesus encountered many kinds of people in the Gospels. Tax collectors, immoral women, thieves, demon-possessed men engaged in violence and wickedness. And some of those people became His disciples, did they not? But it was the religious community that opposed His message time and time again, was it not? Were not the harshest words that Jesus uttered reserved for those in that religious group? Now, this might surprise people. I mean, religious people display a certain amount of admirable commitments. They go to church, they give money to certain causes, they have an elevated moral standard. And because we see all of that outward devotion to God, we think, even though they don't name the name of Christ, their faith is sincere and they're closer to the truth than all of those other people who do not do that. We tend to think that way. I find myself thinking that way. But the Bible must correct our thinking in this. Religion, which is a belief in or a worship of something other than the God of the Bible, is a sin in the Bible. It is a sin because it always places man at the center, and it is not a human quest to embrace the light and to know the truth. But rather, religion is a way for men to hide from God by constructing a system of works for God in place of a relationship with God. So religion in the Bible is a sin because it is all about what man does and does not do And what always gets lost in that system is the beauty and wonder of God. It becomes a way for man to earn God's favor. And as he works this system, the glory of God becomes absent. And there is no power to convert the soul. So Jesus comes against the religious teachers in Israel. And we saw last time in verse 15 where he says, this is speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus said, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, what gets lost on us here is how shocking this would have been to the people who were listening. I mean, here's Jesus confronting the Pharisees who do everything with God in mind, right? They eat with God in mind. They they rest with God in mind. They schedule their week with God in mind. They dress themselves with God in mind. Everything they do, some aspect of the law, governs their behavior, It was all about God from their diet to their dress and how they spend their time. And Jesus says to them, it's all a big fake. Everything the Pharisees did had the appearance of godliness, but it was really just to justify themselves before men. They were experts of the law and they were self-proclaimed experts at keeping the law. And what we discover in the Gospels is that they are the worst kind of the abuse of the law. So, the Pharisees abused the law by either adding to it, they would multiply rules on top of God's rules, or they would manipulate God's law by creating loopholes for themselves so that they could sin. Now, I think we tend to only think of the Pharisees. Oh, yeah, we know they they manipul- or they, they multiplied the rules, right? So God gave the, the Sabbath for rest, and they said, you can't do this, 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 and you can't do this, 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 this. And the Sabbath day becomes this big, weighty, undesirable day. Or ceremonial washing, or whatever it is. So we think of the Pharisees as abusing the law that way but they also abused it another way in that they would look for ways that they could get away with sin and it still be legal. In fact, keep your finger in Luke 16 and turn over to Mark chapter 7, and I will show you an example. <clears throat> One book to the left. Luke chapter sorry Mark chapter seven, starting in verse nine. Jesus said to them, "This is to the religious leaders, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. but you say if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the Word of God void by sorry, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and notice, and many such things you do. So they found a religious loophole. Mom and dad are in need. They're in financial need. You are to honor them. You have the resources to help them. But greed is keeping you from wanting to do that. And so you could say, this money is dedicated for the sake of God. And therefore, mom and dad, I can't help you. And that was a religious loophole they would use to break the commandment of God. And Jesus calls them out on that. Now turn back to Luke 16. What Jesus is going to bring to light in this section is that it was all about being justified before men. It was all about maintaining the appearance of holiness while at the same time not obeying the God who is holy. Now, the next few verses might seem like they don't flow with the conversation. I said before the sermon there are difficult passages. I find this to be a somewhat challenging passage. I've read through it a number of times. And Jesus goes from talking about money with the Pharisees to talking about John the Baptist to talking about the law to talking about divorce and remarriage. And you're like, what is going on with the flow of this conversation here? And the more I've studied this, the more I see it clearly now as part of one giant rebuke from Jesus to the Pharisees, and I would like to help you to see that in our time together. So we saw last time after Jesus taught on the subject of money, if you look back at verse 14 of Luke 16, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. We saw this last week. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus brought heaven down to earth and he, he demonstrated that through his miracles and through his teaching. And the most devoted men in Israel ridiculed him in response. And so what he does is he exposes them for the hypocrites that they are. And he exposes the fact that they do everything to be seen by men. And he is going to expose their empty religion and point them to what their heart truly desires. But it's a little bit of a twisty turn, so so stick with me here. Verse 16 The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. What Jesus brought into the world was not just another religion or philosophy. Jesus didn't come to earth and say, hey, I've got this new way that's going to totally start right now without anything prior. Rather, we know that Jesus came as the fulfillment of thousands of years of previous revelation, what we call the Old Testament. So He did not bring something new, but rather He was the fulfillment of something old. The entire Old Testament, of course, anticipates the one who is going to come and bring everlasting peace. The Jews had a misunderstanding of what that meant. But the Messiah comes to bring peace with us and God and to set us free from our great enemies which are sin and death. And so Jesus coming into the world marks a new era of redemptive history. So to the Jew... The law and the prophets, which is what Jesus says here in verse 15, 16 rather. The law and the prophets was like saying the Bible or the Old Testament, we would say. This is what they held to as the truth of God's word. This is what they held as a community of religious people. And Jesus says here that with the coming of John the Baptist, that era came to an end. Okay, so you've got Genesis 1 all the way to this wild-eyed, crazy preacher named John the Baptist, and that is an entire era of redemptive history that is an age. So when you think of the great prophets of the Old Testament, you think of Elijah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, and hopefully in that list is John the Baptist, This is why Jesus says in verse 16, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, were until John. Closing of an era. And then he says, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So John becomes like a hinge between the old and the new. He is a transitionary figure who is... Bridging the two. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the herald of the Messiah. And he closes out that Old Testament age. And when you look at the ministry of John, it is very unlike the ministry of Jesus. He is the final prophet and he preaches like a prophet. In fact, his message was to prepare the people for the Messiah and, just to make sure you're paying attention, what was John's primary message? Repent, right? As an Old Testament prophet, John sounds like the other Old Testament prophets. Repent! He's calling the nation to turn from their sin. But the new message that Jesus brings is not specifically a proclamation to repent, but a proclamation to enter the kingdom. Right? So so John's message was repent for the kingdom is at hand, and he hands the baton to Jesus as it were, and Jesus begins his ministry with the same message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But that does not remain his message throughout his entire ministry. Rather, the rest of his ministry unfolds this message in calling the people to enter the kingdom of God. So, in a sense, John represents the law and Jesus comes and he represents grace. John's message was that people needed to stop doing evil. That's what you know, Repent, that's what he's telling them. Stop stealing from people. Tax collectors, stop charging people more than you should. Roman soldiers, stop using your power to take things from people. Stop it. That's his message. Knock it off, Israel. But that does not give people entrance into the kingdom of God. If if you are a thief and you hear a message, repent, and you repent of being a thief, that does not make you righteous. It just means you stop stealing. You still have an entire history of stealing. It's just a promise to change course. But what Jesus brings in the new is the entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not just an outward command to change. It's the righteousness that we need before God. So, John brings the law. Jesus brings grace. The law cannot save you. The law never could save you. The law can only produce guilt and an external obligation to obey. But through Jesus, He produces the righteousness that we need and He gives us an inward desire to obey. So believers, we Christian people, are not people who are just to conform to the standard, but we become people who love the standard. That's what grace does. It gives us entrance in and it gives us a heart to love the things that God loves. John Bunyan demonstrated this in a poem. You may have heard this before. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the Gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. So, The law then becomes something internal that we desire, not just something external that pronounces us guilty. Now the Pharisees were part of this bygone era. They were part of this Old Testament era that Jesus is saying is now finished. They were the old wineskins. Now verse 16 is a bit tricky Because there's a phrase that Jesus uses here that can be interpreted a couple different ways. If you look at your Bibles, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And the ESV says, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, are you ready for a grammar lesson? Kanoi's like, yeah! Yeah! The only one who's ever told me after a sermon, I was so excited when you got into the grammar. (laughs) Most people are like, oh, man. So the Greek here for the verb to force is in the passive or middle voice. So a passive verb is where the subject is being acted upon. And the middle verb, which we do not have in English, is where the subject is acting upon himself. Okay, so when you have the Greek and you have a verb and it's middle passive, it could be one or the other and you try to figure out, as tra- when you're translating it or the translators try to figure out which one it's going to be. Is it middle or is it passive? Is this saying the subject is being acted upon or is this saying the subject is acting upon himself? So they chose to go with the middle voice which says, and everyone forces his way into it. You see that in your ESV if you have the ESV? And everyone forces his way into it. But you might have a footnote with an alternate reading that says everyone is being forcefully urged into it. That would be the passive rendering. The ESV went with the middle and the the, the footnote says, but it could be this also. Now I think it makes way more sense if you go with the passive rendering that says everyone is being forcefully urged into it because I made the point last week that Jesus did not have many disciples at the very culmination of his ministry. You don't have multitudes of people pressing to get in because they want to be in the kingdom. But you have a message that is forceful upon the people to enter the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God is preached and it's not a take it or leave it kind of proposition. It is you must do this or you will perish kind of message. So, it makes more sense to me to to say that the people are being forcefully urged into the kingdom. Now, that could be wrong. It could be right. I don't know. But that's not going to change the main idea. And the main idea is this. Jesus ushers in a new era where the kingdom is opened up and it's not through the Old Testament law that people are becoming kingdom citizens. It is through Christ. So John preaches repentance. Jesus preaches the kingdom. And they all need to get on board with what God is doing. Now I mentioned earlier, these verses seem kind of disjointed and Yet, I want to make a point that these are not haphazardly thrown together, but they roll right into each other because the reaction would be Jesus is saying the law doesn't matter anymore. Jesus is teaching a kingdom message that the law is obsolete and we don't have to obey the law. I mean, if there's a transition between eras where the Old Testament system is over, then now you're going to have this kind of lawlessness with Jesus. So that makes sense if people are going to think that for Him to say verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Void. Right? So he's talking about the law of the, the law and the prophets until John, this strange comment about being forced into it, and then he talks about how the law is not going to pass away. So Jesus never came preaching a message that the law was unnecessary, but rather that it was incomplete. Human beings were not made for the sake of law keeping. The Sabbath was not made for man, but man, sorry, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. God did not create a bunch of human beings and say, how exciting it would be if I would just make a bunch of rules for them to keep and I get to watch them try to keep all of those rules. Rather, God gives us his law as a reflection of his moral will, as a reflection of his holy character, but never as a way of attaining salvation. In other words, the law is not this ladder that we climb to heaven in the hopes that we can reach there. So this is the big difference between Christ and religion. Have a conversation with any religious person you know that is not a Protestant Christian and ask them, what must you do to go to heaven? And I guarantee you, there will be a list of do's and a list of don'ts. You must go to the church, you must tithe, you must give to the poor. You must make a pilgrimage. You must keep the sacraments. You must perform the sacred rites. You must keep the Ten Commandments. Because religiously minded people have a list and they must do the list. The Jews determined that since God gave them the law, that they would be saved by the law. But that was never God's intention at all. In fact, we learn in the New Testament that one of the reasons God gave the law was so that we could look into it like a mirror and see how sinful we really are. Has anyone in this room never, ever told a lie? Raise your hand. No one can see you. I'm the only one that can see you. Not a single person in this room has kept God's law concerning lying or telling the truth? See that? It's like a mirror we look into that declares us guilty. So the law is good and the law is holy, but the law cannot save us. So now with the coming of Jesus, Christians have a new relationship to the law we can see the righteousness in it we can see that it's god's holy moral standard and we can strive to obey it because we have been changed on the inside but we do not live as people who are under the law where it condemns us now i know some people struggle with this concept of the christian's relationship to the law and entire massive tomes have been written trying to explain it. I heard a very good illustration, and hopefully this will help. What is the Christian's relationship to God's law? In his little book called The Gospel As It Really Is, Stuart oliott tells a story about a single man who had a housekeeper And he found that many of her methods in keeping the house were not to his standard. So he posted a list of rules on the wall, ten of them, as to how he wanted things kept. Meals will be served at 8 a.m., 1 p.m., and 6 p.m. Washing up is to be completed immediately after every meal. No tea bags will be left in the sink. Beds will be changed once a week. Every room in the house will be vacuumed once a week, and so forth. But the housekeeper began to resent these rules. Who is he to tell me how to keep house, she thought. I will do things the way I have always done them, my way. So she not only did not love his standards, but she resented them. But as time went on, she fell in love with the man and they were married. And now as his wife, something had changed within her. She no longer resented his standards. She found herself delighting in the things that she once grumbled at. The list of rules had become an expression of what her beloved one desired and now she wanted to make sure that it was done the way that he wanted it to the point where the posting of the rules was no longer necessary. It was her heart's desire to do his will. Now, I don't know if you find that helpful. I find that helpful because Jesus comes and he raises up a people not who forsake the law of God, but who become converted in relationship with Jesus and they begin to inwardly love God's law and desire to keep it because it is the voice of their beloved. Now you do not have this with the Pharisee. The Pharisees love the teachings of men, the Pharisees love to do things their way, and they love to use the cloak of religion to practice their sin. And this is the reason that Jesus rolls right into the next verse, which is one one more example of how they did this, the law concerning adultery. Notice verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now we saw earlier in Mark 7 how they had a religious loophole concerning their money. They did not have to give their money to their parents which would have honored God because they found a way that they could keep it and say that it was dedicated to God. And here is another famous religious loophole of the Pharisees. Now, if you're reading through Luke, and I've thought this myself, you're like, why is all of a sudden he says this thing about marriage? It doesn't seem to fit. Mark, there's a section on marriage and divorce and remarriage, Matthew, there's a section on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And here, Jesus decides, uh, eh, I'm going to rebuke the Pharisees for a minute, talk about the Old Testament, and then I'm just going to say one statement about divorce and remarriage. It just doesn't seem like it fits. In fact, your Bible might have a separation here with a header that says divorce and remarriage, or Jesus teaches on divorce and remarriage. And so that puts a further barrier between what he just said and what he says on marriage. But that does not help to have a header there because it's all part of the same conversation. The Pharisees were lovers of money, but they were also lovers of covetousness and particularly coveting other men's wives. How did they accomplish or fulfill their sin, they did so through divorce and remarriage. So, if a Pharisee wanted to be with a woman who was not his wife, but he was bound by the covenant of marriage, which is in God's law, he had a loophole. He could exploit that loophole by writing his wife a certificate of divorce and sending her away, and all of the rabbis in Israel would say, yes and amen. Totally lawful. Now, they get this idea from Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses has a teaching about divorce, and you could not just say to your wife, I divorce you and send her away. There was a certain protocol that must take place. And in the case of Deuteronomy 24, there is some, quote, uncleanness that you find in your wife. So, it is probably a reference to sexual immorality, but the rabbis taught that the uncleanness was anything that you find dis, that you dislike in your wife. So, if your wife has lost her beauty, you could divorce her. If your wife has not given you a son, you can divorce her. If your wife has burned dinner, and I'm not kidding, the Rabbi Hillel taught in the Mishnah that if your wife burned the dinner, that was grounds for divorce. And so, imagine the power a man had over his wife where he could just dangle this over her head all the time. Now, God was not giving His stamp of approval on divorce, but He was regulating it so that it would not be abused and so that they would not defile the land that they were going to enter into. Back in Deuteronomy. And what do the Pharisees do, but they exploit this teaching and they use it and abuse it. So, picture this now. They could drop one relationship and they could start another relationship and they could do it legally. And it was not sin. A man would desire a woman who had been divorced from her husband and he could divorce his wife and he could marry her and it was perfectly lawful. So, if you notice verse 18, the beginning, lust could get you out of a marriage. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And lust could get you into a marriage. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus covers both sides, both directions of this thing. And he calls out the Pharisees for abusing the law of God and being sinners. There's no concern for the beauty of God's covenants. There's no desire to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their marriage commitments. It's all about fulfilling their own lusts. In the mid-20th century, a pastor wrote a book to young men who were preparing for the ministry. And the book was called Gold, Girls, and Glory. And he recognized... Those things that would destroy a young pastor as he entered the ministry. And it was one of these three things. He noticed what was disqualifying men from ministry, and it was either gold, he would compromise his ministry for wealth, it was girls, he would disqualify himself through extramarital relationships, or it was glory he would use the platform that God had given him to bring attention to himself rather than God so gold girls and glory and I was studying this passage and it reminded me of that book because Jesus is pointing out that this is the the sin of the Pharisees in fact it is the earmarks of all false teachers all false teachers love money They love women and they love the praises of men. Look at any cult leader over the last 200 years and you will find at least one of these that dominate their life. So, this helped me make sense of this passage because what does Jesus call the Pharisees out on? They were lovers of money, he said. They do everything to be praised by men. And they are adulterous at heart, gold, girls, and glory. So that helped me to make sense of Jesus putting this text on adultery here in Luke because it is not a random placement. It's not like Jesus says, well, I'm wrapping up with this crowd. I'm just going to throw in one statement about what I think about marriage. It's, it's perfectly placed because Jesus is making a point by exposing them in their sin. He's making a point about how far they were away from true faith. In conclusion, a society with lots of religious people is generally a good thing. But the question is, and it's the question that we're confronted with again and again as we see Jesus and the Pharisees, what kind of religious people are we talking about? Is it the kind of faith that is born out of love for God and His Word? Or it is, kind, is, it, is it the kind of religious faith that is a cover-up for sin? And so you and I are confronted with this time and time again, and we must ask ourselves, what kind of religious faith do we have? Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that in everything, You are teaching us, and You are training us to think biblically. We thank You, Lord, that in every encounter You had, In every confrontation, there is something for us to ponder about ourselves. We are not to look at these religious leaders and say, I'm glad I'm not like they are. But we are to look at them and say, Lord, show me if I am like they are. See if there be any wicked thing in me and lead me to the way everlasting. So Father, if there is in any of us this same kind of religious spirit, may we see it, may we abhor it, and may we turn from it. To the glory of God, in the name of Jesus, Amen.